0: From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Welcome to a very special
1: mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. We won't be taking your phone calls today. But sit back, relax, and listen to the dulcet tones of Father John Tregilio as we empty out the mailbag today. Um, if you would like to be part of a future mailbag uh, program, just send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. Or you can text a question. Text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question message and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program, and our host is he is every Monday from the Mount, Mount St. Mary's Seminary in <laughs> Emmitsburg, Maryland. Father John Fragilio, how are
2: you? I'm doing well. I'm getting ready for St. Joseph.
1: <laughs> as we tape this uh, mailbag edition, we are on the uh, eve of the Feast of St. Joseph, um, just recovering from the Feast of St. Patrick.
2: Yeah, and, but this will uh, be much, much bigger,
1: you know. And there, there are two. <laughs> I had a, yeah, there are two, there are two uh, uh, feasts that will um, sort of uh, free you for a day from your Lenten uh, observances, and that would be this feast of Saint Joseph that we'll celebrate that we would have celebrated uh, last Saturday. By the time you hear this broadcast and uh, the Annunciation. That, that uh, falls during the Lenten season, and I had a priest yesterday I went to mass who uh, suggested that the Irish have added St Patrick's Day to that list of solemnities. Well, interesting
2: <laughs> enough, like my diocese in Harrisburg, our patron saint is St Patrick, so the bishop there normally dispenses when St Patrick's Day falls on a Friday, only because he's our he's our patron saint. <laughs> Very good. Uh, again, we won't be taking your phone calls today. William writes in, How do
1: I explain church teaching on the atonement to Protestants who say that Christ's atonement was completely sufficient and that things like penance are not needed?
2: Well, that, that, that is a common question. And, and, you know, you just go back to St. Paul. He, he himself talks about for that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. It's not lacking because Jesus uh, could not have done enough. He could have done it all completely by himself. However, when he says, take up your cross daily and follow me, why would we need to take up our cross if he did it all? Unless there's a little tiny sliver left that he purposely did on Calvary. He left a little tiny opening for us to unite ourselves to his suffering. And so that's how you and I... Can make atonement. We do penance, not because of of necessity, but by God's divine will.
1: You know, I like uh, uh, the former Rosalind Moss, now Mother Miriam of the Lamb of God, used to always explain it. That I uh, don't well, probably still does explain it. I don't want to <laughs> take her she's out of passed, take her out of this life yet. or anything. <laughs> <laughs> but would say that uh, that you know, it's 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 analogous to, to a mother who's making a cake. And she's perfectly capable of making that cake with no help from anybody else. But she allows her young daughter to partake in the process uh, of making the cake for her own edification. Similar, huh?
2: Very similar. I mean, my dad used to do that with us. He would be working on something outside, fixing up the garage. And he would do most of the big work. And he'd leave me and my brothers to, like, pound one nail. (laughs) (laughs) Which was not always... A safe <laughs> <laughs>
1: proposition. Oh, <laughs> uh, We've got an, an, an anonymous email. Ooh. Yeah, to fasten your seatbelts. I would like to know what are we supposed to do while the priest is doing the consecration? Many put their heads down, and I always look at what the priest is doing. Is that right or wrong of me? And also, what are we to do after taking communion? Go back and kneel and pray?
2: Well, first... You can look. You can bow your head. You do whatever you want to do. That's your own personal devotion. Um, the priest elevates the host so people can can look and see. This is why the church has those Sanctus bells to ring the bell so people know that the consecration is happening. And even though most priests today celebrate uh, mass versus and facing the people, people doze off, so they they still need those bells to wake them up and say, "Look." The priest is about to consecrate, like when he put his hands over uh, at the Epiclesis, and then when he elevates the host and elevates the chalice, the bells go off, and yeah, you can look at it and say to yourself, you know, behold my Lord and my God, as St. Thomas did, or you can bow your head. Whatever private devotion you want to do is, is completely fine. Uh, we just don't want you disrupting people. I know sometimes people get into other things that might be a little bit distracting, Um Now the other about after communion, you can sit, kneel, whatever you do, that's comfortable. I know some places, priests were forbidding people from kneeling right after communion. Um, The Rome came out and said, no, that's not right. If you want to kneel, you kneel. If you want to sit, you sit. Uh, Some people stand. All right. Uh, I know uh, a lot of the bishops want to have more uniformity, and that's a good thing. But when uh, push comes to shove, you have that right. If you want to kneel, stand. Uh, for Holy Communion, if you want to commune on the tongue or in the hand, these are valid options that uh, apply to all the faithful.
1: Yeah, and and you will see some pretty uh, extreme acts of personal <laughs> personal piety during yes. the liturgy. Uh, someone might step out in the aisle and prostrate themselves. These are yes. things that are that are frowned upon, huh?
2: Yeah, well, and it's not because it's a bad thing, but it's not proper. You want to do that privately, fine, but during the sacred liturgy. There are certain postures that are um, required or at least heavily suggested for the faithful and for the, the clergy, for the priest and the, for the deacon. So you doing your own thing, it's not about me, it's about giving God worship as a member of the church.
1: And, uh, you know, I think it would be beneficial, and I'd like to get your your take on this as long as we're discussing this this topic, but... The general instruction of the Roman Missal is readily available to all the faithful, uh, whether it be online or at your local Catholic bookstore. And I think that and you can read it cover to cover in about 20 minutes. And I think yeah. that if people would actually take the time to do that, it would shed a lot of light on things, and it would also give them a little bit of, of insight into where there is a little bit of leeway for personal uh, piety.
2: I think that's an excellent suggestion, I know we have it on the electronic library at EWTN. Um, it's, it's invaluable. It's not, I mean, yes, it was written for the priests, okay, but the lay people are, are, are allowed to read it too. And it gives the directions on how to celebrate Mass, what is required, what's suggested, what's normal. And we made that distinction between what's normative, which is the usual way, and what's mandatory. Like, for instance, using wheat bread, grape wine are mandatory normative things would be like, uh, you know, the priest normally does this or he does that, but he has some valid options, just like he can face the people or he can celebrate Mass ad Orientum. Those are valid options for the priest. It says, though, there should be uh, available an altar that's freestanding so that if the priest wanted to celebrate Mass, face the people, he'd be able to do it, whereas if there's only an altar that's, you know, ad Orientum, then he doesn't have that option.
1: You know, I, I remember a couple decades ago, Cardinal Lorenze was in the United States, and he was in Detroit, and he was speaking to a group of of uh, the lay faithful, and took some questions from some people, and someone asked him about glass vessels yeah. during the mass, and he explained that that's that that's not really appropriate, you know, that that it should be something of precious metal, it should at least be lined with with precious metal. But yeah. he concluded, and this is what I thought was so wise, he concluded his remarks by saying, Now listen, I don't want you running back to your churches and saying, Cardinal Lorenze said no glass. <laughs> and, and I thought that was very wise because, you know, while we can gain a lot of insight if we would read the general instruction of the Roman Missal, don't make a laundry list for your pastor and go running back with this list of a, of what you perceive to yes. be liturgical abuses, right?
2: That's right. We don't want people to be making citizens' arrest, <laughs> as, as I would say. Um, and I, know, I think Rome it was even more insistent recently that it not only frowned upon, it, it forbids using glass and ceramics, that it must be of noble material, uh, either you know, um, um, gold or silver, or it could be gold-plated brass. Um, but as long as it's something that's non-porous. But I know a lot of, I mean, I remember Father Levis, he said on Mother Jelka's live show, I was on with him, that one of his nieces gave him a crystal chalice, because it was from uh, Ireland, it was, you know, the water for, cris- for crystal. Right. And he says, but I never use it. He says, oh, he said, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Nah, she doesn't watch the show, she won't know. Well, she <laughs> called in at the call-in part of the show and says, Father Bob, I'm ashamed of you.
1: <laughs> oh, that's hysterical. And I'll give you uh, 30 seconds to weigh in on what we ought to be doing during the Our Father at Mass? You should have your hands
2: folded to yourself. Uh, holding hands is done a lot, but it's not what is normative, okay? Uh, it's not a sinful, but it's not normative. And so you should keep your hands folded and say the Our Father, because we're saying that individually, but as a member of the body of Christ. And if you're only holding hands with five or six people, what are you saying about the other people?
1: It's a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Trigilio.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, The address is OpenLine at EWTN.com. If
1: you'd like to stay abreast of everything going on here at EWTN, simply subscribe to our uh, weekly e-newsletter wings. You can do so by logging on to EWTN.com and uh, click on subscribe. Again, a very um, special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. So we won't be taking your phone calls today. Um, Jerry writes in, what's the difference between being beatified and being canonized?
2: Well, being beatified is the the step just before being canonized. And you have to have one established miracle after death in order for you to be eligible for beatification. And the Pope then, either he himself or he delegates someone to announce that this person is now called blessed. Canonization is when you go to the highest step. You go from being beatified to being canonized. You are now a saint in the church, and people are allowed to venerate you around the world. You can have churches named after you. You can have little statues, holy cards, and whatnot. But the the canonization is a part of papal infallibility, where the pope officially decrees that this person is in heaven. Now, heaven is not only for canonized saints. So a lot of our relatives and friends, grandmas and grandpas, moms and dads, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters who are in heaven are really saints, they're just not canonized saints. And a canonized saint is able for public veneration. Obviously, it's not adoration or worship, that's for God alone, according to the first commandment. Mary gets the highest veneration, so we give her hyperdulia, but dulia is the honor and veneration we give to the saints.
1: All right, thanks, Father. We appreciate that explanation. Um, eight, uh, again, we're not going to be taking your phone calls today. It's a very special mailbag edition, VWTN's Open Line Monday. And, and really quickly, Father, I want you to comment that the whole purpose of the um, the the requirements of miracles and and, and you know, this is not some supernatural thing that that the that the powers that be are looking to see, but this would be evidence that yeah. this person is in heaven and mm-hmm. able to intercede on behalf of the people that are sending the intentions their way, right?
2: Absolutely correct, because if a person's God forbid, in hell, or even if they're in purgatory, they're not able to have miracles uh, affected. But even the saints, when a miracle happens because of a saint's intercession, it's God who's doing the miracle, not the saint. But it's one way to church uh corroborates their eligibility now the pope can canonize even without he can dismiss because he's the supreme head of the church but he normally wants to have one miracle for beatification a second one for canonization years past it was even more rigorous you had to have two for beatification and three for canonization they also look at your whole life what you wrote what you said what you did and see if you know you had a virtuous life heroic virtue but that's not to say that you're they're looking for a perfect track record because as we know, Saint Augustine and others, you know, had a, a very murky past and then they repented, Mary Magdalene and others. So it's not that they're trying to find uh, all your faults, but they're seeing did you grow in grace?
1: Yeah, and I've got a question here but I love the way it's worded. Jane says, Can you explain general and particular judgment at the final judgment? And now I don't know if Jane wants the information. Or if she wants to know if you can explain it.
2: <laughs> uh, well, uh, particular judgment happens when you or I die. It's And it's at that very moment. And it's called particular because it's just about you. And that is where it's determined whether you go to heaven, hell, or purgatory. Um, general judgment is at the end of time, the second coming of Christ, when all the dead will be raised, the resurrection of the dead. And uh, we have the end of the world. And what is called the general judgment where... There's no second ruling. This is not an appeal. This is not the heavenly Supreme Court. What general judgment basically is that God uh, makes manifest all the particular judgments so that you, if you're in heaven, you know why those people who are there are with you and why the ones who aren't there aren't there.
1: Here's a good question from Kevin as we continue our journey through the Lenten season. He says When do you break your personal fast during Lent? After Holy Thursday Mass or after the Easter Vigil?
2: Well, that's a good, it depends on how you count, okay? Um some people count if you count from Ash Wednesday all the way to Easter Sunday, uh there's more than 40 days and so there's there's where some people will relax themselves on the Sundays in in Lent because Sundays the day of resurrection. Other people, all right, they'll count from Ash Wednesday up until um Holy Thursday. Uh but that's including uh the, the Sundays. So Technically, the Triduum is Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and the Easter Vigil. It's still Lent, but we, we call Lent the, the days between Ash Wednesday and what we call Spy Wednesday. But Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter are not outside of Lent. It's a special part of Lent. So, yeah, that's why Friday, Good Friday, is a day of fast and abstinence. It's a double header. So, yeah, you're, if you're going to be fasting or doing acts of uh, abstinence, definitely... You know, you want to keep that on th- Thursday, Friday, and Saturday.
1: Uh, Linda writes in, Why do Protestants reject the sacrament of confession? Specifically, why some say that it ended with the apostles.
2: <laughs> uh, well, I think it was because the Protestant reformers, um, Martin Luther, Zwingli Huss, Thomas cramer and others, alright uh, they had issues with the sacrament, and then, of course, then their followers followed suit. Jesus gave that sacrament, as we see in the gospel, after he rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven them. The church then took that to heart and practiced the sacrament of penance, reconciliation, confession, however you want to call it, uh, consistently for over 2,000 years. The Eastern Orthodox Church does it, okay? Uh, So Catholics and, and Orthodox. This is truly the way in which you and I confess particularly, uh, but not exclusively, our mortal sins uh, to be absolved. Because the priests have that gift that was given to them by Jesus uh, in the upper room. Now, yeah, people say, well, can't I just go to God and confess my sins? You can do that if you're in danger of death and there's no priest available, and then you have to make uh, a perfect act of contrition. But as a Catholic, as a baptized Catholic, or if you were baptized Eastern Orthodox, You need to go to the priest because he represents the church. He acts in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. So it's Jesus who forgives you in the sacrament through the priest. So it's not me forgiving you, I'm forgiving you in the person of Christ. That's why I say the words, I absolve you. Father Trigilio doesn't forgive you, it's God using me.
1: And uh, along the same lines... Jermaine w- wants to know if financial debt is considered a sin
2: it all depends on the context and your culpability. If somebody is very uh, careless and let's say you're a father or mother, you've got a family to support, and you know you're just racking up debt, and either you or someone else is going to pay it, but it's m- going to be a burden on other people uh yeah that could that could be very sinful and it can be more sinful, it could be even mortal sin if you do it and you don't have permission okay let's say you're doing it and you're a married person you're not telling your wife or your husband you're racking up all this debt or you presume someone else is going to pay it or you're going to say to yourself i'm going to declare bankruptcy or like a lot of these uh, young people who rack up student debt figuring well i hope the government uh... uh, uh, you know uh, absolves me of it that's not right now if you get over your head and it's not your fault or you didn't you were not prudent enough at most, it would be a venial sin. But you need to, you know, that's part of good stewardship, you know, and it has nothing to do with your credit rating, but it has to do with this idea that I have to be able to provide for myself and for those that are under my care.
1: Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today, today rather. Uh, an email here from Angie who says I know the teaching of the church is that Mary was conceived sinless. And that means it was preordained, predestined. But then it is also said that Mary had a choice when she said yes when the angel told her she would conceive. So I'm confused about if she was predestined to be chosen or if it was her free will.
2: It's both. (laughs) That's the mystery. is because God uh, gave her an infallible grace, her immaculate conception, which he knew she would accept. But she still retained her free will now this is a very poor analogy but i use it anyway because it at least gets a point across if you look up at the sky all right and you see a plane is hurling down towards the earth you know it's going to hit and it happens you didn't cause it to happen you just knew because you saw that it was not flying in the right trajectory you saw it was going down so you didn't cause it to happen but you knew it was going to happen God knew Mary was going to accept the grace. She was going to cooperate with it. But because he's God, he, he also made sure that this was an infallible grace, which accomplished exactly what he wanted because he wanted to have his son save the world. He did it without in any way detracting or diminishing or diluting her free will. That's the mystery, is how God could do that infallibly without affecting her free will. But he did.
1: Uh Kathy asks what's the difference between spirit and soul? Does the church have a specific teaching on this?
2: Um well, not exactly. I mean, we use the word soul to describe, you know, the, the those two faculties, our intellect and will. Uh sometimes people use the spirit to refer to all the uh immaterial aspects of the person. So it would be uh your 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 soul but also like your passions okay uh those like your emotions they're not really corporeal they work through your body but they're sort of extraneous to it in to a degree because they're they're immaterial uh so i know sometimes people make that distinction other people will try to talk about spirits being other spirits uh like the souls in purgatory or they use uh to in, be inclusive of anything that's um not human like demons or devils uh witches and goblins and all that stuff but from the church's standpoint uh spirit and soul can basically mean the same thing uh but again it depends on the, the context in which you're defining because obviously when you say the holy spirit or we're talking about the third person of the trinity uh jesus says i'm going to surrender my spirit he's talking about his human soul but you and i you know we have intellect a free a rational intellect a free will that is our 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 uh, immortal soul and then we have our body with its five senses.
1: Very good. Thanks, Kathy, for that email. This is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Uh, we won't be taking your phone calls today. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag program here on EWTN Radio, simply send us an email to openline open at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com and put Monday or Father Trigilio or just Father John if you don't want to get too frisky with the vowels there. Um, and we'll get it to the appropriate folder. And uh, you can also text your question if you'd like. You can text the letters EWTN to five five zero 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 Wait for a response, text your first name and your question, message, and data rates may apply. Once again, today is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We won't be taking your phone calls. Emptying out the mailbag on Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com.
1: Renee would like to know, Father, are devotions to the Divine Mercy and the Rosary necessary to be a good Catholic?
2: No. They're optional, and they're very helpful and efficacious, but they're not necessary what's necessary are the sacraments. The seven sacraments are necessary for salvation. But the sacramentals, which are all the devotions like the rosary, divine mercy, the scapular, um, you know, all any and all different kinds of, of things that are non sacraments. That's why they're called sacramentals. Uh they're optional, but they're more than just, you know, take it or leave it. I mean they're they're helpful. Sacraments give you sanctifying grace. Sacramentals give you actual grace. So Uh, It's to our advantage to to avail ourselves of them.
1: And, you know, we have a pattern uh, that has been handed down uh, as tradition throughout the uh, centuries uh, as to what mysteries to pray on which days for the rosary. Traditionally, we pray the joyful mysteries on Monday. We pray the uh, sorrowful mysteries on Tuesday, the glorious mysteries on Wednesday, the luminous mysteries given to us by John Paul II on Thursday, the... uh, uh, the um, Sorrowful Mysteries on Friday, the Joyful Mysteries on Saturday, and then the uh, Glorious Mysteries again on Sunday. Trent wants to know which Rosary Mysteries we should pray during Lent.
2: You can do the Sorrowful all through Lent, or you can follow the same schedule. You're not obligated to do those particular mysteries. I mean, that's a tradition, but a small t, it's a custom that we do the the Joyful on Mondays. But during Lent and Advent, Advent people typically would do all throughout the season of Advent the joyful mysteries and then lent the sorrowful during Christmas and Easter the glorious mysteries but you don't have to you can still follow your your other routine of different ones for each day of the week or you could do one for the whole season or you can just pray them at, at, at your discretion because let's say you pray one let's say you do three rosaries in one day each one okay uh, you could do a different set of mysteries so this isn't something that's chiseled in stone.
1: And you can even kind of mix and match them if you want to. Huh?
2: Absolutely. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think people sometimes get locked into a little too rigid of a schedule with these things, and uh, while that is 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 wise guidance given to us by the church, and I think we should certainly, you know, consider why she's given us that, and maybe uh, give deference to that the majority of the time. But in particular situations, I know the Knights of Columbus for many years have had a rosary that incorporates. Uh, You know, five total mysteries, but from each of the three pre-existing categories before the luminous mysteries, and it's a very beautiful
2: way to pray the rosary. Oh, and like the Dominicans, because they're the ones that we got the rosary from through St. Dominic, used to do all three of the traditional... uh, Because the the actual rosary was actually 15 uh, decades at one time uh, for the three sets of, of, of mysteries. And that's why the larger rosary you'll see religious wearing... And then it got condensed or abridged uh, because people found you know they couldn't do all fifteen at once, so then they broke it down into what we have now: the five-decade rosary. Andrew writes in:
1: If the atonement was perfect and it wiped all sin from man, why does the Catholic Church still baptize infants for original sin?
2: We do that because that's the personal application of what Jesus did to that person. Jesus. Saved everyone, redeemed everyone, but it becomes personal in our baptism because He's the one who said, "Go baptize uh, all nations, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit." He would not have told us to do that unless He wanted us to do that. He didn't say just do this until uh, Good Friday. He commanded His apostles, and they did it. And we see in the New Testament, in the epistles, the Acts of the Apostles, people were baptized well after Jesus's death, resurrection, and ascension.
1: Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We won't be taking your phone calls today. If you'd like to be part of a future mailbag show, simply send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. John David writes, when Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done, I am curious how God and Jesus have separate wills. Can you explain that?
2: Yes, uh, Jesus has two wills. He has two intellects because he has two natures. He's God and man, true God and true man. So he has a human nature, a divine nature. Each nature has an intellect and a will. So in his divine nature, he's the second person of the Trinity. His divine will is the same as the will of the Father and the Holy Spirit. Same divine intellect. But in his human nature, he has a human intellect, human will, which is distinct, but it's always united to uh, the divine. So when he says, my will, he's referring to his human will, Which he always submitted, uh, subjected to the divine will as an example of what we should do.
1: Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's open line Monday. Uh, An email from Paul I have a family member who has decided she no longer wants to be addressed as a female. How can I love and honor God? How can I love her and honor God at the same time as a Catholic?
2: Well, you have to love her. Obviously, she needs the love, she needs the prayers. I don't think you're going to be able to talk her out of this uh, nonsense. Uh, people, I mean, you could try, but uh, it may be futile. Remember, Jesus said a prophet's not without honor except where in his own house, in his own family. But that doesn't mean you give in to it. So I would still call her by the name you knew her by. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't rub her nose into it. But the same token, I'm not going to give in and say, okay, like like, say Fred wants to be called Gladys. I'm not going to do that. I would say, look, you're, you're Fred. That's how I knew you. That's how, what you are. Um, you don't like that that's too bad, but uh, uh, again, you don't have to do it in a mean way. you could do it charitably, but I wouldn't surrender and give in to this nonsense and you know not use she or her uh, or he or him and then just, just they and them It's like you know that that's nonsense. so you know you gotta draw the line, but you can always do it in in charity
1: Dina asks are we judged immediately at the moment of our death
2: yes immediate judgment that's why you got to be ready because you You don't don't know know. jesus you don't know the day nor the hour so if you are always in the state of grace you're in good shape i can't count on the fact that oh i can go to confession on saturday and you know today's friday Well, maybe i die today or what if it's monday there's a whole week something could happen you know, you could be struck dead like the nuns used to tell us. You could walk across the street and a truck will run you over. I don't know where these trucks are coming from, the sister <laughs> warned us about, but we were always terrified to cross the street. Uh, Sputnik could hit you on the head. You could get killed by a virus, a bacteria, a stray bullet, any number of things. You could have a, throw a blood clot, have cardiac arrest, you name it. So don't count on the fact that you're going to have time to get to confession. So be in the state of grace as quickly and as often as you can.
1: Paul says, "How do I explain scripturally why we pray to Saint Michael for his help in the battle against evil?"
2: Well, we see in the Bible Saint Michael's name is mentioned, right, in the uh, Old Testament and New Testament. (coughs) Excuse me, Uh, he's there defending the heavenly powers, and so us going resorting to him uh, again is 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 nothing more than heavenly intercession. He's not a mediator. Only Jesus is the mediator. But we go to Jesus through St. Michael, just as God used angels in the Bible. I mean, you see, Gabriel comes and announces to Mary she's going to be the mother of of, of the Savior. God could have told her that directly, but he chose to send the angel Gabriel, which then in turn went uh, uh, also and, and announced uh, <clears throat> other things to other people. You and I... We don't determine how God works, but he perfectly affects what he wants done in the way he wants it done. So if he's going to use these messengers of his, i got no problem with it. I don't see why anybody else would.
1: Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Today, we're not taking your phone calls. We're emptying out the mailbag. And one of the letters in that mailbag was from Ann, who wants to know if humanity is so wicked... Why would God create them?
2: Well, because even though there are people who are bad, evil, and despicable, there's a lot more people who are good. It's just that we don't know all about them. We know about the bad ones because they get all the publicity. Now, at one time, the people of earth were so bad that God, you know, had, a, uh, had it rain, the flood, you know, 40 days and 40 nights to wash away the evil people. And yet, some people survived, Noah and his family But God also promised he would never do that again. And we see time and time again, from evil comes greater good. So even though we saw the horrible evil inflicted on the world by Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong and now uh, Vladimir Putin, okay, those are very bad things, gross evils being committed. And yet, in the midst of that, we see uh, heroic virtue and all the people who are helping those innocent victims there in the Ukraine we've got people who are trying to rescue people like they did at 911. So God permits evil because he knows a greater good can come from it.
1: I just want to point out that Noah and his family were left behind. <laughs> Aaron says, <laughs> they "Why were do- raptured?" <laughs> <laughs> no. Aaron uh, says, "Why do we suffer because of the sin of Adam and Eve? Why didn't God give us the same chance with our free will as he gave them?"
2: Well, uh, unlike your personal or actual sin, which you own, either you do or you don't do, original sin is something we inherit, just like you inherit the color of your eyes, the color of your hair, the shape of your nose, all that genetic material we inherit from our, our parents. And, you know, I just recently did some uh, genealogy on my own and found all my cousins I have in New Jersey and uh, New York and Sicily uh, through through using our DNA uh, uh, research Imagine the prototype, Uh, Adam and Eve are the first humans, so what happens to their nature is going to be transmitted to all of us. So if for some reason Adam and Eve, you know, uh, grew a a third nose or something like that, we would inherit it, okay? Uh, We inherited their sin, that's a part of original sin, but it's distinct from actual sin, when you and I uh, conscientiously, deliberately, voluntarily, you know, break one of God's commandments, but the original sin we inherit because it's a wounded nature. Just like if, if God forbid, your father and mother worked at a nuclear power plant and radiation escaped and it affected their genetic makeup, you would inherit that. The grandchildren would inherit it. I mean, it's it, it's something that happens to the the whole line uh, lineage. There, that's what happened with original sin.
1: Be sure to check out Take 2 with Jerry and Debbie tomorrow at noon Eastern time. Their scheduled topic, In the News, always a popular one. That's Take 2 with Jerry and Debbie tomorrow at noon Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. Again, we won't be taking your phone calls today. It's a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Father John Tricilio is emptying out the mailbag. Greg wants to know if it's okay to have angst toward God when he encounters difficult circumstances, how does he reconcile that relationship?
2: Well, you got to, I mean, first of all, God knows you have it, so you can't lie to the Lord. And, you know, in one sense, you've got to own it. Um, you know, uh, Job, all right, was not happy when all those bad things happened to him. You have to make sure he doesn't, I mean, angst is something that is sort of like a reflex. what well, you have to stop it is from it becoming anger, I can't get angry with God, but I I can be disappointed, not in God, but disappointed that certain things happen, or that he allowed certain things to happen, all right? Um, You know, it would be wonderful if I could say, oh, well, that's the will of the Lord. Not always easy to see that. So, like, when I would have to console a family when uh, a mom and dad, when when one of their children die, whether as an infant, a child, an adolescent, or full-grown adult, they're not going to say, oh, wow, this is God's will. They're going to be very filled with angst, okay? But they move on, and then they uh, adapt and adjust to it. Where I'm there as a priest, say, well, you know, just don't move it into anger. Don't be angry with the Lord. But you can be disappointed, again, not in God, but in what happened. And then where faith and trust comes in, where you say, okay, I don't understand what's happening, but I surrender it to the Lord. Uh, Father Benedict Groeschel of Happy Memory used to say, Faith doesn't give us all the answers, but faith gives us the ability to live with unanswered questions.
1: Again, it's a mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. We won't be taking your phone calls today. Father John, I've had the privilege of walking alongside you at a couple of different March for Lifes over the years. And Pete wants to know how to defend the pro-life stance at a secular college campus.
2: <laughs> well, if, if they allow other groups to assemble, to uh, promote their materials, Uh, then you have every right to have a little booth or table uh, just as the other groups. So if anyone is allowed to, you know, make things available, so are you. Uh, Where you you would would probably not be allowed is where you're going to force it, like um, have it shoved into people's mailboxes, or uh, you might not be able to send uh, an email blast to everyone, um, because you know they'd have to go through the university, but I know places uh, where it's it, private colleges or public colleges. They have to respect your First Amendment right, the freedom of speech. So as long as you do it in a way that's respectful, and if again if other groups, other individuals are allowed to express, then so are you. It's only if they have a an absolute rule where no one is allowed to uh, promote or discuss or at least make available information. So there's where you can really have a lot of influence where you make things available where someone just might be interested or curious. You're not shoving it down their throat, but you're making it available.
1: Um, Ken would like to know what an interlocution is.
2: Interlocution is when uh, God speaks to someone. Usually it's in their mind, their intellect. Um, Sometimes people get these messages. Uh, We want to make it distinct from people who... Get messages, all right? There's some people who who'll come to me and say, "Father, you know, Mary spoke to me today." I said, "Well, okay." <laughs> Father Rutler used to tell this famous story of this uh, woman who's uh, catching him, middle, uh, literally crossing uh, Park Avenue. She says, "Father Rutler, Father Rutler, Mary spoke to me today and says you got to go to uh, Nigeria. You got to go t- today. You got to le- leave immediately, at five p.m." And this was like at uh, ten in the morning. And he said, "Well, what time did she speak to you?" Well, I don't know, like eight o'clock. So, oh, well, she told me uh, a few hours later, forget about it. (laughs) But there are valid interlocutions where God or Mary or one of the saints may speak to you. It's not in a way that you hear with your ears. You you hear it with your mind.
1: Uh, Yvonne wants to know, what is the theory of penal substitution, and is it a Protestant or Catholic doctrine?
2: Well, the idea of penal substitution is that Jesus paid the debt the crime of sin, and we have to be careful, because it was—it's more than just uh, pure legal atonement. And that was so, what some of the reformers, uh, or some even some of the, the heretics from the early church, had maintained, was that you know, uh, uh, Adam and Eve's sin was a grave offense against God, which it was, and so only God could uh, make the atonement. But it's more in a juridical I- idea. And there's where like people like Martin Luther could say well we became so decrepit so corrupt that our nature could not do anything because it was basically you know garbage and his idea of grace was that it was like snow covering it over Trent the council of Trent and the Holy Roman Catholic Church teaches that nature was not destroyed or corrupted it was wounded and grace then uh, heals and perfects that so penal uh, atonement ha- can be uh, proposed as long as it takes into account that you explain that we, our wounded nature was healed and the uh, indignity, the injustice against God was also rectified. It's, it's a twofer.
1: Uh, Francis would like to know, what does the Church teach about divine simplicity and can we hold various interpretations within the Church?
2: Well, basically, divine simplicity is that because God is pure spirit, he's simple. Not simple in the sense of, you know, the guy doesn't have too many marbles, you know, oh, that poor soul is simple. The most simple is that he's not made of parts, alright? The higher beings are more simple. So, for instance, you and I are body and soul. Angels are pure spirit, okay? But they were created, alright? They had a beginning. They have no end. God is pure spirit. He has no beginning, no end. Alright? His will is absolutely effective what he wants happens angels they have to conform their will to god's will so god's a simple being in that he's not made of parts he's just pure spirit and so his simplicity those aspects of of uh, deity which we find obviously you know we learned in the catechism where it's the, the, the catechism in the catholic church that's been out since 1992 the baltimore chasm baltimore catechism or Catechism of the Council of Trent, they all are all consistently saying the same thing. God's simplicity has to do with his essence, what he's made of.
1: Again, a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls. We touched on this on, uh, on some level a little earlier, but Baron would like to know, why is the doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity so important to Catholics?
2: Okay, It's important because we want to keep intact that this gift that was given to her of her Immaculate Conception in no way, shape, or form could ever be questioned. And so it's not that uh, if she, if she would have had children with St. Joseph that that would have been evil or wrong or sinful because they were legitimately husband-wife. But she promised herself to God and to keep intact the, the, the divine mystery of the Incarnation that there is no way that anyone could, you know, establish, oh, well, maybe Jesus wasn't uh, uh, divinely conceived. The fact that she had no other children, and her, her relationship to Joseph, while very true and legal, it was not a carnal um, marriage. Uh, they were husband and wife, but um, it was never consummated. In no way, shape or form, destroys the fact that they're married. Uh, she's still truly Jesus' mother, And her virginity is a gift from God to her uh, in the sense that, again, not that it was bad, but that was to keep intact the whole mystery of Jesus being God and man.
1: Um, Got an email here from Rosie, and she says, um, I am thankful to EWTN Catholic Radio for having a trusted resource to go to. I know this is a long email, but hope you will take time to read through it and respond. I have a good relationship with my sister-in-law, so I would like to respond in a way that is best for everyone. My husband's family of one girl and four boys were raised Catholic, and all but one brother married someone who was either already Catholic or converted and are now practicing the Catholic faith. It is the wife of this brother who sent me the email I am forwarding to you. They are strong Christians and regular churchgoers of, I believe, a Presbyterian church. Just in case it makes a difference, at this, point, uh, at this point we are all in our 60s or older and now in the grandparenting stage of life. Many years ago, this sister-in-law began asking me a lot of questions about the Catholic faith that I would say were designed to make me believe I needed to leave the church. I have since told her that it was her questions that made me actually learn more about the Catholic church her beautiful teachings, and why I chose to remain Catholic, and I'm very grateful for that. Mostly since Pope Francis was elected, she regularly sends me emails like the one below. In the past, I have responded that uh, he was not speaking infallibly and directed her to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, but in this case, I honestly am not sure what we as faithful Catholics are supposed to do when we hear about news stories like this, should we Catholics actually be calling for the Pope stepping down, or anything along these lines. I believe that the Holy Spirit is guiding the Church always, but truly I am not sure what is my proper response, not only to my Protestant brothers and sisters, but for my own family, uh, for my own faith journey. Um, and the email she's referencing says, while I don't fully understand why he didn't specifically, well, actually, she says that an example, here is a response, uh... She's wondering basically why Pope Francis didn't speak out more uh, firmly against abortion on a particular instance. And um, so, you know, essentially there, there have been a little bit of, of perceived ambiguity about some of the things yes, that our Holy yes. Father has said. And, and how do we respond to the people outside of the faith uh, mm-hmm. about these matters?
2: Well, that's not um, restricted just to her sister-in-law. I mean, I have people of faith. Faithful, clergy, seminarians, you know, colleagues, ask the same question. The church makes this very clear distinction that uh, papal infallibility is different from divine inspiration. Divine inspiration is that God inspired the sacred authors to write those things and only those things the way he wanted and how he wanted. Papal infallibility means that the Pope is prevented from teaching Uh, upon all the faithful and binding in conscience on faith and morals uh, so that he could not proclaim a new dogma or deny an old one. But it's not inspiration so that everything the Pope says is not inspired. In fact, nothing that the Pope does is inspired. Inspiration died with uh, the death of St. John. The Pope has the charisma of infallibility, which means the Holy Spirit would prevent him from teaching error uh, officially, universally, but that doesn't mean that it it has any effect on his prudential judgments. So how he says things, uh, his own personal opinions, uh, other things that he has, you know, whether he he roots for the Argentinian soccer team or the Italian one, you know, uh, what he said on on airplanes, those are all prudential judgments. But what the Holy Spirit would prevent, it would be for him to come out and say abortion's okay. He couldn't say that. The Holy Spirit would stop him from saying that, and he would have to try to say it as the official teacher of the Catholic Church and say, "Okay, I hereby declare abortion is no longer a sin." It could not happen. The Holy Spirit would stop it somehow. We just don't know how or how it would be, take effect. But it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is influencing all the things he says, how he says them, when he says them, uh, his his personal reaction to things. Okay, I remember when, when you know there was that scene on tv where he was slapping some people okay that, that's not there's nothing to do with papal people with that <laughs>
1: well father john we've run up against the end of the uh clock again on a monday edition of ewtn's open line would you be so kind as to leave us with a blessing
2: absolutely benedict god vos only potens deus pater and filius and spiritus sanctus amen amen
1: on behalf of our host father john tregilio and our producer michael mccall i'm jack williams Thanks so much for tuning in to another edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Back at it tomorrow with Father Wade. Uh, Father Mitch will be in the house on Wednesday. Father Brian Milady on Thursday. And Colin Donovan, our very own Vice President of Theology, on Thursday. Until we get together tomorrow, God bless.